But there is one more ingredient to this battle, our secret ingredient, the theme on which our chefs will offer their succulent variations. Today's secret ingredient is... Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Caitlin Kenny in New York City. It's Wednesday, July 15th, and I'm in the host chair today because we're bringing you an extra special podcast. It's a Planet Money radio competition, and since our regular hosts are all taking part, we figured it wasn't really fair to have them host. That's right, your favorite reporters, Adam Davidson, David Kestenbaum, and Hannah Jaffe-Walt, will be meeting on the airwaves of battle. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, our Planet Money indicator, one. As in, when this is over, there'll be only one person left standing. Adam's been saying forever that he wants to do a competition-style podcast. A radio-based top chef, this American model, Project Runway, you know, something like that. And as you know, with David in D.C. and Hannah on the West Coast, it's rare that we're actually all in the same place. But about two weeks ago, everyone was in New York, so we said, this is it, this is the moment, let's have the competition. And then the trash talking started. There were emails going back and forth. David Kestenbaum even used the word sucka. It was pretty crazy. So where did we decide to have the competition? Well, one of New York's most exciting economic events, the Fancy Food Show. All right, we're standing outside the Javits Center. Javits Center? Javits Center? God, I know nothing about this. Before we sent them out, we laid down a few ground rules. First, this is Planet Money, so obviously the story had to have something to do with economics. Second, and this one is a bit more convoluted, really can't explain how this came about, but anyway, the story had to contain at least one reference to a mythological creature. So, for example, if they wanted to do a story about an artisanal cheese, that's fine, as long as the cheese was made by a man with the head of a bull, a minotaur. And one last restriction, all sound for the story had to be gathered within an hour of walking in the door. 60 minutes. This is France. Are you setting a stopwatch? I'm setting my alarm. Over there I see, what is that? Candies? That's still France. Turkish food behind there, that interests me. It's 3.30. We ready? I'm ready. Ready? All right, shall we meet right here at um, one hour from now? It's 3.33. 433. Bye. And now we've gathered two weeks later for Top Planet Money Project Iron Radio Chef Master. Yeah, we're still working on the name. What we do have completely in the bag is an awesome competition. And here's how it's going to work. We're going to play the three radio stories, one each by Adam, Hannah, and David, composed of audio gathered in that just one hour at the Fancy Food Show. Remember, all these stories, just an hour had to be about economics, and had to have some mention of a mythical beast. Our panel of celebrity judges will critique the pieces, and then you, our Planet Money listeners, will get to vote on which story you like best on the blog, npr.org slash money. We'll crown the winner on Friday's podcast. Before we get to the contestants, let me introduce my fellow, completely impartial, and impervious to bribing judges. Uh, So first up, we have the one, the only, Robert Krolwich. Hi, I'm very happy to be here, except I'm not really sure that I'm, I'm, I'm of even mind about whether I'm, I'm just here. I have no opinions about whether I, you know, in any way, I not, am above opinion not, until it's necessary to have one. Exactly. Okay, perfect. Yes. And then we have Planet Money's own star editor, Uri Berliner. Hi, Uri. Hello, I'm here, and that's all. I'm revealing nothing else. <laughs> all right. 
Then we have Planet Money's producer, Caitlin Kenny, myself. Very happy to be here, guys. <laughs> get to work with you every day. It's quite a privilege. What a circular introduction that is. Yeah. And now for the contestants. In alphabetical order, by first and last name, he's my boss, but I promise that won't affect my ability to judge him, Adam Davidson. Hello. All right. The lovely Hannah Jaffe Walt. Very lovely to be here. And of course, last but certainly not least, Mr. David Kestenbaum. Hi, everybody. All right, all right. Enough chit-chat. Let's get to the stories. First up, Adam. I probably don't have to do too much work describing the fancy food show because it looks exactly like what you're thinking. A massive convention center with huge pavilions, the French, the Italian, the Japanese. Then there's all these rows of chocolate makers and a cheese area and all sorts of delicious salty snacks. Each pavilion, each booth is working so hard to convey just how much money was spent on decoration and design. Some are clean and modern, like these cool slate tables with a few selected cheeses on them. Others are all ornate and Baroque, and I have never in my life seen so many chocolate waterfalls. This show is not for regular consumers. It's for professional buyers, people who buy food for restaurants, hotels, fancy shops. And so everyone displaying stuff is competing for the attention of a very few influential people. And every booth here seems to have the same idea, to convey in a glance that your product is so good that it commands such a premium that you can blow a ton of money on your display. The thing is, when everything you see is opulent and decadent, it all starts to blur. Which is why this one little row of stands, it was way in the back at the far right corner of the bottom floor of the exhibition, screamed for attention. Not because it was elaborate, because it was so modest. There were seven stands in a row with almost no decoration. Each stand was made as basic as possible, just a plain metal frame and white poster board and a few products on a cheap table. It's the only place I stopped because it was so strange to see the mundane in this place. I stopped at the first guy in the row. I learned that his name is Daoud Kasrawi, the rep for Kasrawi Foods. Yes, we are Kasrawi from Palestine, Hebron. From, from Hebron, Palestine. Yes. These seven modest booths here in the back, this is the first ever Palestine pavilion at the New York Fancy Food Show. Kasrawi Foods makes potato chips and things like that. Daoud offered me a sample. Oh, this is like a bugle. A bugle. Yeah. Mmm. It's nice. It's got a flavor. Yes. All right. I'm going to just come out and say this. That bugle chip was not nice. It, it was not good at all. It was awful. It was stale. It didn't really have much flavor. And I just was embarrassed, so I lied to Daoud and said it was good. Or I was being polite or nice or whatever. But... I was too chicken to say to Daoud what seemed obvious to me. Kasrawi Foods, as far as I can tell, has no business being at the fancy food show. This place is all about wealthy indulgence. So I asked Daoud, what's Kasrawi's position in the marketplace? What do they have to offer the American retailer? The price is the big deal. When Yours are cheap? We, of course, you are cheaper. How much do your chips cost? My chips cost in the American US dollar small one. For example, maybe they're going to be a quarter dollar or so. That's a quarter right there. Retail. Retail, yeah. I'm reasonably sure that absolutely nobody at the fancy food show is in the market for a low-end, super cheap potato chip. Have you sold anything yet? It's not about sell. It's about finding the potential in the market. Have you found potential in the market? It's, I, I wouldn't, 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's you won't find the potential from the first time. This is our first time with the show. Sometimes it takes time. So today is just about getting so people see Kasrawi name. Yeah. They can think about buying from Palestine. Yes, I agree 100%. I don't mean to be a jerk here. Daoud seemed like a good guy. My guess is it's not his fault that he's at the wrong show. He was probably misled in some way. I felt the same thing with the next guy, the guy in the booth next to Daoud's. Um, I, I hate to do this, but for this story to make sense, I have to show off that I speak Arabic, at least a little bit of Arabic. All right, I'm going to be honest here. I do not hate to do this. I love showing off that I speak a little Arabic, even though my wife keeps telling me that my show-offiness is not that appealing. The guy I'm talking to is Bashir El-Hathnawi. He's the proprietor of Hathnawi Foods. He doesn't speak any English. He said he could find this friend of his at one of the other booths who he thinks does speak English. But then we found that guy, and that guy says, no, he doesn't speak any English either. He only speaks Arabic. This is a big barrier, I would think, to a successful sales effort at the show, the fact that you cannot speak to almost anybody there. But aside from the language barrier, Hathnawi seems a better match than the potato chip guy, than Daoud. Hathnawi sells honey, olives, spices, and his stuff is clearly a notch higher quality. He does do some exporting to Arab shops in Europe. He hasn't sold anything here, and he's struggling to develop connections. But he says later this evening he's planning to visit some Arab neighborhoods in Brooklyn to see if any of the stores there are interested in his products. I was starting to think that maybe these guys got really taken for a ride. This must have cost a fortune to get here, and it doesn't seem like they'll make any money back. But things made much more sense when I visited the next stand, El Ard Olive Oil and its proprietor, Raid Taha. There's one thing he wanted to say right off the bat. Thank you very much for the U.S. government. They were with us from day one, and hopefully next year we'll be... uh more Palestinian companies displaying their products in the fancy food show. Finally, I get it. These guys didn't pay their way. The U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, paid for most of the cost. So these guys weren't scammed. They were just given a chance for a cheap trip to New York. A lot of these guys told me this was their first trip ever to America. The outside chance that maybe just maybe they'd sell some product, that's a bonus. But pretty soon I realized that at least this guy, Rod Taha, He is not here for a junket. He is pure business. He has a practiced sales pitch. The Palestinian olive oil is organic by definition. There is no irrigation. There is no cultivation, no chemicals. Um, That's why it has very strong uh, flavor and aroma. Maybe you should try it. uh, Yeah. It's very nice. um, This time, I was not lying. This stuff is delicious. And it comes in these beautiful bottles that you could easily picture at some fancy food store. Rudd has been preparing for this moment for his big launch into the U.S. market for years. He sees the fancy food show as just one step in his plan. He'll be using this trip to meet with a lot of buyers and wholesalers. He's looking to partner with someone as a U.S.-based distributor. I wish him luck. I'd buy the stuff. As I was leaving, rushing to meet David and Hana before our hour was up, I ran into Shireen Dabah with the Palestine Trade Center. She worked with Karana, the company USAID hired to get the Palestine Pavilion set up at Fancy Foods. She said my take on the Palestinian delegation isn't totally right. Yes, she says, 
Some of the guys here are very low end. Others, like El Ard, are more appropriately high end. But that doesn't mean it's just a boondoggle for unprepared companies. This is uh, our first time here in the exhibition. So we wanted to see what the customers want, what the buyers is looking for. So for us, this variety is very important for to know what's uh, for next year we will exhibit. From low end to middle end to high exactly. end? Exactly. That is the plan. So we are planning with Karana for next year to do more expos for the Palestinian pavilion and focus on what the American market is uh, looking in the Palestinian products. Fair enough. I, I would think you would know not to send the bargain basement potato chips to something called the fancy food show, even if you don't have any experience. But then again, Bashir, the guy who didn't speak English and wasn't having a lot of luck, told me right before I left that someone was interested in buying some of his stuff for the U.S. market. They weren't planning on buying a lot. He said it wouldn't even fill one container on a ship. But he says it just might be a start. Adam Davidson, NPR News. All right, let's get some initial reaction from the judges. Robert Krolwich. Well, uh, I... I was waiting for the mythical reference, which escaped me. Perhaps there was uh, a griffin somewhere in the room. Oh, you don't speak Arabic, obviously. Uh, well, no, I got the <laughs> part, but I, 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 you know, that has two declensions. One is griffin, uh, as in there is a griffin at the end of my bed. But the other uh, is often a reference to the edge of a porcupine, which is uh, a completely different reference. And I took it on the porcupine side, so I'm not sure that the mythic requirement was fully met. That said, I was quite engaged uh, by the little mystery here. Who are these people? What are they doing all at the end of the row? What's the potato? I like, I knew also, just because I happen to know Adam, that there is no way, there is not a single way that he could have had social intercourse with these three gentlemen without bursting into Arabic at some point. And the fact that he did it mentioning his wife's feeling about all this, I thought was a very modest thing. That's very as far nice. as I'll go so far. Yeah. All right. Uri? Well, I, what I liked about Adam is that he revealed a little more as he went along, um, although I think that you know we may wind up with the guy selling the chips may be the best businessman at all. I don't know if you've tasted Bugles or not lately, but uh, uh, <laughs> they're, def- <laughs> they're probably as bad as what uh, that guy was selling. So, uh, so, so maybe... Maybe Fair enough. That's I have not had bet. them since I was a kid. I think. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, what I what what really uh, impressed me about Adams is that he he you, he told more of the story as he went along, and and he revealed a little more about why they were here and and what they what they could get out of it, and uh, and 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 that and that that made the story really work. And how about on the purely economics angle? Do you think he did a good job there? Um, well, let's see what the, what the potato chip guys, how they wind up doing. I mean, I think that's the, that's the test. I, I thought it was kind of interesting that there was that back, that the, that the organizer of the event suddenly walked into the scene. So, so this was a government-to-government thing as opposed to a businessy thing at one level. But some of these people were entrepreneuring themselves in what otherwise would have been some kind of State Department doodah. I mean, so, yeah, there was, a, there was real business there. It was peeping through. Yeah, and I think I like the sort of the green PR about the organic olive oil that was re- very much of the times. I thought that was that that impressed me a lot. Adam, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was very you, very much your personality. There was one phrase missing, however, which was when I was in Iraq. 
But you did get the Arabic in, which is a good job. I thought it was a nice job. I like the slow reveal. I thought it could have been a little bit shorter. I will say that. All right, let's move on. Next up, in alphabetical order, Miss Hannah Jaffe Walt. 2001, a businessman lands in Madagascar. He steps out of a private jet, and then he turns around, leans back in to grab his suitcase full of cash, and he checks once again to make sure no one has followed him. What is this guy up to? It's not drugs, not arms. Actually, it's pretty vanilla. Okay, it is vanilla. Sure, we are Nielsen Massey Vanillas. We're a manufacturer of all-natural pure vanillas. This isn't a private jet guy. This is Matt Nielsen. I met him at the Fancy Foods show in New York City, and he really is just a manufacturer of vanilla. But he's going to help tell this story to explain why just a few years ago there were several reports of vanilla buyers showing up in Madagascar with suitcases full of cash. First stop, Mexico. 500 years ago. Um, Mexico, which is actually where vanilla originated, um, had a bee called the melopone bee that was responsible for pollinating the orchids that produced the vanilla beans. It was a small bee, black and fast. No one thought much of it, especially not the Spanish conquistadors who had taken a liking to vanilla flavoring. It tasted so good, especially with that other tasty treat from the New World, cocoa. So, like many other things with the conquistadors, With vanilla, the response was, great, we'll take it. And when they did um, take vanilla from Mexico to places like Madagascar and Indonesia, they were able to grow the vines and get the orchids, but they never got vanilla beans. The vines grew, the orchids blossomed, the beans never came. The French tried in Madagascar, they failed. Nothing. Strong vines, lovely orchids, no beans. The Europeans shook their fists and furrowed their brows. The indigenous vanilla growers from Mexico snickered. Because they didn't realize that within the orchid there is a membrane between the stamen and the pistil, and it has to be um, pollinated. It has to pollinate it. Uh, it can't pollinate itself, so something has to do it. Something like a bee. A bee not found in Europe, not found in Madagascar. This completely stumped the Europeans for about, oh, 300 years. 300 years. They didn't know what was missing. This magical, almost mythical very special creature. Well, if it's attracted to the vanilla orchid, I would certainly say it would have to be special, yes. 1837, a Belgian botanist finally figured out the vanilla orchids could not self-pollinate. They developed a method of literally using a bamboo toothpick and going in by hand and breaking that membrane and pollinating the orchid by hand. And that method is still used today. Wow, really? Yeah, this was developed back in the 1800s, and they still use that same method today. And so you have to do that one by one? You have to do that one by one. Every single orchid has to be hand-pricked. You need a lot of people to do that, and it takes a long time. So ideally, you do it in a poor country. Vanilla farmers make about a dollar a day. It also has to be a hot country. So all that narrows the options. Indonesia, Mexico, Papua New Guinea, and most popular of all, Madagascar. Well, there was, uh, back in 2000, there was a series of cyclones that went through Madagascar and destroyed a large uh, proportion of the crop. Dramatic crop-destroying weather, unfortunately not that uncommon in Madagascar. Um, And then the next year or two after that, they had um, contested elections. That either. Madagascar, this small country, it is the world's largest vanilla producer. And it's never been a stable supply, but 2000, that was the most dramatic ever. Vanilla in um, the beginning of 2000 was about $30 a kilo, and in 2004 it peaked at $550 a kilo because of the shortages. And this is where we get to the guy with the suitcase. 
buyers got crazy competitive. Just getting a hold of vanilla was so, so hard. If you had a connection, you'd do anything you could to make sure your competitors did not find out. 2009, supply has normalized, but we're still paying for instabilities that have passed and for instabilities to come. Every time we buy a cookie, a tub of ice cream, a fancy cocktail, and we're paying for the workers to prick every flower one by one, human beings doing the job of the magical bee. Khana Jaffe Walt, Planet Money Fancy Food Challenge winner. <laughs> All right, let's turn to the judges. Er, you want to start us off this time? Wow. Um, you know, first of all, I'm a sucker for Madagascar stories. I've always loved them. So, I mean, I've, since I've always, it was always my favorite place to look at on a globe. So, Hannah had had me there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, this was just a, a, a history lesson, a, a, a bit of science, um, and some great economics about the about the shortages and and you know it was it started like a thriller, a, a drug smuggling thriller. So, um, and and it was you know some beautiful writing there. And uh, I I don't know if the magical bee is our mythical character or not, but maybe Hannah can enlighten me on that. Well, you know, if you're in Madagascar and you can't figure out how to pollinate the orchids, it's almost like the bee is this mythical creature that just is fanciful and amazing. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Robert. Well, I, I thought it was pretty, pretty exciting. I mean, also, because it, it it took so long to think about that, I mean, these are plant people. They live with the orchids, and they stare at them all the time. They saw the bees in the first situation, and they just ignored them for that long. And then the solution, that you prick a plant, I mean, you break its membrane. First of all, there's something slightly dirty about that, and also slightly boring, an interesting combination. And then I'm thinking, wow, so I have to get to be, you know... The guy who goes to work at five in the morning and goes up to one orchid after another and goes pop, 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 pop. And I'm thinking that's an interesting job to think about not to do. So this is like a world. A world opened here. Now, it's true. Palestinians trying to sell chips uh, is a world too. So I'm going to be open-minded to the end. But uh, this was uh, this was interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. I have to say, as a baker, I've often wondered about the high price of vanilla. Vanilla beans, if you buy them individually, are crazy expensive. So it was really fun for me to hear why that is. So, Han, I give you props for that. I have to say, though, uh, the mixing, the levels, you know, there was a little bit. The guests were a little hot. So uh, some work needs to be done there. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I didn't realize sense. we are going to have a- Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have, last but certainly not least, Mr. David. Oh, no, least. All right, here's my question. Why does fancy food cost so much? Why does organic milk cost $8 a gallon? My wife buys it, and I love you, sweetie, but $8? That's the price of a beer. I tried to find the most expensive item I could, and the first thing I found was maple syrup. A gallon of that is 70 bucks. My name is David Marvin, and I'm the owner of Butternut Mountain Farm from Morrisville, Vermont. David Marvin makes maple syrup, which he says is a pretty labor-intensive business, Someone has to go out in snowshoes and drill holes in trees and then connect them all with tubing. And it can be dangerous work. You have to be very careful when you're in the sugar woods to make sure that you don't get bitten by a snow snake. Uh, Are there really snow snakes? Of course not. (laughs) Was this a myth started by the maple syrup manufacturers? No, I think it's uh, old farmers, you know, maybe uh, one too many after milking the cows some night. 
Can we just run through the business of it? Like, what? Uh, how much does it cost to make a bottle? Right now, the cost is um, in the two dollars and fifty cents a pound range. So, a bottle, a twelve ounce bottle, the cost at the farm would be about two dollars and fifty cents or or more just to make the syrup before it's packaged. Like, what's the markup on these? I don't know what the markup is entirely. Uh, we're almost a commodity-based business like so much of food. So at our level, the markup's very, very small compared to what I understand it is in automobiles or computers or something like that. What he's saying is that it's hard to make a killing in the maple syrup business because one guy's syrup is pretty much the same as the next guy's syrup. So if you tried to tack an extra 50 cents onto the price, a competitor's just going to undercut you and steal all your business. Can you tell me what your profits are like? Uh, I can, but I'm not going to. Who knew the maple syrup industry would be so secretive? It's not that I'm secretive. Uh, it's that some things are, you know, best kept. Um. Yeah, secret. <laughs> Here's one secret that I kind of love. David Marvin does that fancy thing you've heard about on Wall Street. He hedges. You know how airlines sometimes lock in the price of jet fuel with what's called a futures contract? David hedged the old-fashioned way. He just bought a bunch of maple syrup and stored it. It's a maple syrup version of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And in recent years, it's made him money because the price of syrup went up after he bought it. How many gallons do you have in reserve? At present in our warehouse, we, we, have, um, we have a lot. Come on, tell me. Probably 500,000 gallons. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of pancakes. It is a lot of pancakes. Okay, so maple syrup, the price... It seems like it's basically the cost of what it takes to make it, so I feel all right about that. I continued my price quest one aisle over in France with this guy, Lionel Girard. Sorry, Lionel Girard. I'm a professional uh, cheese guy. Just a quick question. I'm just trying to find the most expensive item I can in the whole show. Alors, mostly, uh, the, you will have a beautiful roquefort that you see here appealing your eyes. This is a real roquefort artisanal one, maybe the last artisanal one, but they still put 100% fee on this beautiful Roquefort. Wait, but, wait, uh, we have 100% tax on that? Yeah, you, uh, you make money with that. <laughs> How much is a Roquefort cheese? Alors, Roquefort cheese right now is mostly around $12 a pound. But in, in, in France, I can get it for $6 a pound? Exactly. So here's a big reason why we are paying so much for cheese. We are caught in the middle of an economic spitball fight. We spit at Europe, they spit back, or really, I don't, I don't know who spit first. But, but here's the thing, Europe won't accept U.S. beef that has hormones in it, and the U.S., we tax French cheese. But you know, one day we will have American meat in Europe, and one day we will have more uh, cheeses from France in the United States, and we will make love together, and that will be fantastic. By the okay. way, you all look very good. That woman you hear in the background there cracking up at us, at me being asked out on a date, she works for Costco. Yeah, Costco, which buys millions and millions of dollars of cheese. That's right. Right here we have a meeting of supply and demand. He's the cheese supplier. She's the demand. And demand always knows about the prices. And she says, if you want to find something really expensive, go find the white truffles. White truffles. I just have a few minutes left, but I find them in the basement. The guy selling them has this photo of his dad with a truffle-sniffing dog sitting on the handlebars. He says they still use dogs to find truffles. He held up a small bottle of three white truffles, and the price, 400 bucks. Half of that, of course, is the high price of dog labor. 
No, I'm kidding. But half the price, 200 bucks, does go to the big dog, the U.S. government. Like the cheese, truffles are taxed at 100% coming into the country. Oh, wow. Uh, first of all, tremendously big props for getting the mythical beast early and quickly, the snow snake. I mean, I don't know. You know, sometimes God just kisses you on the lips and hands you a snow snake and you, you just put it up there front. So it's sort of like if it were like a double axle or one of those kind of in a, you know, an ice skating competition, you get the triple axle done like really early in the competition and you can relax and glide to the finish. So that's wonderful. <laughs> the second thing is uh, David has now got a very, very natural sort of second sense about business and economics. Like he just... He translates as he talks. So the guy says, well, we got this 100% tax, and he just explains that to you, the spitting contest. All this economics doodah is now just laid in real gently and expertly. So on the storytelling side, he knows what he's doing. He just kind of parenthesizes as he goes. And he gets asked out. That's nice. Um, I don't know. In general, I thought it was a very, very satisfying experience. Uh, that's my initial reaction. Very, very satisfying. All right. Uri. Well, yeah, I was, like Robert, I was just wowed by the snow snake right up there at the top. I mean, he got his hard work out of the way, and I don't know what he had to do to, to get the guy to come up with that. And I don't know what he had to do to to, to come up with that professional Roquefort guy, which was clearly <laughs> fictitious and, <laughs> and and not to be believed. That was actually oh. Adam Davidson. Oh. <laughs> God, he was wonderful. And and uh, and oh, if so there are uh, Roquefort spitball fights between the U.S. and France, I want to be there. I want to see one of them. And I, you know that that was quite an image. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, again, I think it was beautifully constructed. It you know in search of the priciest thing from the thing that really wasn't that price to to the white truffles at the end and and I the uh, the maple syrup thing was <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can see how that all started Canada so. apparently does have a strategic maple syrup preserve <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask David did he really ask you out yeah he, to some club called Berlin oh <laughs> hello Berlin lovely <laughs> I have to say I really enjoyed it the snow steak was great I don't think Adam had a mythological reference in his. But now that we've heard all three pieces, it's time for the judges to weigh in. Do you guys need a few moments here to deliberate? I have to say, I actually feel really nervous right this minute. <laughs> Tensions building. I really do. I, feel... I already drank my champagne this morning. Nice. Okay, now it's time to hear the official, well, the results from our celebrity panel of judges. We'll be hearing from you, America, later this week. Robert. Okay, I... Uh... All right, uh, here's my analysis. First of all, Hannah got lucky because she ran into what I would call a real story. So, I mean, that's just, you know, you can't control for that when you're a reporter walking into a big room with lots of people. Sometimes God says, okay, you get a real one, and sometimes the other God says, no, you're going to have to make it up. So as a, as a working reporter, I my hat goes a little off to the people who are just stuck without anything, which I believe the two boys were, more or less. So um, on the boys' side, they had to just play with what they were given. On the girls' side, she got something real. Everybody executed pretty well, but if it's just with me, with my prejudice of called make it up, I'm going to go with David just because uh, uh, he had 
he had different things happen, and he just played them nice. It was really like it's like poker. You get a couple of deuces, and you try to have to swell around the deuces. And I thought he swelled pretty well, which is not to say that Adam didn't try as hard as he could, because Adam got the worst cards. I mean, really, that's very starting with almost nothing. Okay, one vote for Mr. Kessenbaum. Okay. Uri, what say you? Well, I mean, in all seriousness, just the the three of them, the, the two boys and the girl, were pretty damn impressive. I mean, yeah. it just shows you what they can do, and they are they they are they really deserve our uh, props and uh, I, I just am in awe of what they can do but um, uh, you know I gotta say that you know in the end you make your own luck and um, I think Hannah made her own luck and I'm gonna go with her by the narrowest of margins uh, you know she she revealed the story of vanilla with that prick of that orchid and and uh, you know suitcases full of money at the top you can't lose with something like that okay I guess that leaves it up to me Kind of an intense moment here in the studio. Adam's staring right at me, <laughs> holding my future Just follow in his your hands. own judgment about these stories and your Caitlin, I'm logging into career. my bill pay feature on <laughs> my bank here. I'd like to What's phone a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Can I call the audience? No, we'll be doing that later. America will, of course, have its own thoughts on this subject after this. <laughs> okay, so in all seriousness... My vote is going to go to Mr. Kestenbaum. Yes! Um, I really, really... I'm crying. <laughs> I thought he did a great job of weaving a really great story. I really love the characters, want to follow along, and mixing it with the economics. Um, and he really concentrated on that. And so he takes my vote. So we've had our say. Now it's up to you. We're going to post all three of these stories on our blog. That's at npr.org slash money. We're going to announce the winner on Friday's podcast. That's it for us here today on Planet Money. I'm Caitlin Kenny. Thanks for listening. Money don't get everything. It's true. What it don't get, I can't use. I want money.